Good morning. This is God's word from Daniel chapter 7. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. We are in the book of Daniel, and today we're starting the second half of the book of Daniel. And if you're familiar with the book of Daniel, even if you're not really familiar with the book of Daniel, you've probably heard some of the stories from the first half. You've heard of Daniel in the lion's den. You've heard of uh, the handwriting on the wall. You've heard of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Well, now we're going to, as it were, kind of turn over to the second half of the book. And this is a section of scripture that even if you grew up in church, you might not be familiar with. You might not have read these chapters, or you might have gotten to certain parts like, I don't understand any of this. I'm going to Colossians and just moved on in your Bible reading plan. And I had an analogy that kind of came to mind for me. The first half of the book of Daniel, it's like if you had a record, you know, like they used to make records and they make them now and they're popular, but they used to make albums that were like intentionally side A, side B. They used to do that on purpose. So side A of the book of Daniel is kind of like the Beatles, it's accessible. It's real popular. Everybody knows, you know, everybody knows songs by the Beatles. You know, they're, they're, they're kind of singable. And, and then you flip the record over, and the second half of the book of Daniel is Pink Floyd. And it's abstract, and it's a little bit like, do I hear, is there like a witch cackling in the background somewhere in this song? Like, you just, it's a little bit more artistic, a little bit more visionary. And so y'all need to switch gears from the Beatles to Pink Floyd. And I came across a quote this week, (laughs) and it wasn't encouraging, so I thought I'd share it with you. Graham Goldsworthy said, For some preachers, it would seem that preaching from apocalyptic texts is a case of fools rushing in where angels fear to tread. And I was like, mm, man, that's not, that's not encouraging. So, you know, again, my gift to you, because I had to stomach that this week. I'm just foolish enough to tread in there. Hey, actually, one other thing really quickly before we actually dive in. I want to let you know about something. This is a book. Uh, it's written by an author named Elliot Clark. Elliot Clark served as a missionary for a number of years in a, uh, a Muslim country in uh, Asia, where evangelism looks a lot different. When, when, when I say the word evangelism, you guys might think of people like Billy Graham, you know, hosting a, a big giant meeting in a, in a stadium somewhere. Uh, when you're in a is, Islamic-dominated uh, culture, you don't do evangelism that way. You do evangelism uh, more relationally and more just by loving people well and sharing the gospel with them one-on-one. And so he wrote this book called Evangelism as Exiles. And you know that one of the themes of the book of Daniel is this idea of exile, that the, the people of Israel were taken into captivity in Babylon, and they had to wrestle with, how do, we, how do we be faithful to God when we're not the ones in charge? And you know that the New Testament calls us, followers of Jesus, calls us exiles. 
and that we have to learn how to think maybe a little bit differently about evangelism and sharing our faith and sharing the gospel with people. And so I read this book earlier this year, really liked it. Our staff is almost done reading it together right now. We've been reading a chapter a week. And so we bought a case of them and we'd like to give them to you uh, today. So they're out in the lobby. They'll be at the Connect desk. I'll have some out there. Um, We'd like to, if at all possible, uh, maybe one per family. If there's for some reason, like why you and your spouse can't share a book, come talk to me and we'll get you signed up with marriage counseling. Uh, no, he falls asleep and he drools all over. Okay, fine. Well, you can, you can, you can ask for two and that's, you know, fine. But if at all possible, kind of one per family, uh, they're out there. We'd love to give this to you and ask you to start reading along. And Pastor Kyle is kicking around the idea of maybe doing like a, a book discussion thing in like six, seven weeks on a Sunday afternoon, getting people together and talking about uh, how we can live as evangelists when we're not, you know, necessarily doing like big crusades or things like that, more of a, a relational approach to sharing the gospel. Sound good? So... Shift gears into the second half of the book of Daniel. We've got a book for you. That's a really, it's a really easy and really good read too, by the way. So hopefully it'll uh, go well with the series in Daniel. Will you guys pray with me? Will you guys pray for me as we foolishly rush in where angels fear to tread? God, we thank you for your word. God, I'm thankful for the truth of your word, but God, in passages like this, I'm thankful for your presence that your spirit comes and you, you make yourself known. God, even at times when we don't fully understand what we're reading, God, that you are doing a work in us and you're shaping us and you're growing us. And so I pray for myself that you'd help me to serve my brothers and sisters well here today, to help us make sense of these uh, somewhat confusing and, 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 and uh, not always clear passages. God, would you guard my lips that I would only teach what is truthful and helpful. And God, for each of us, would you help Uh, not just our minds, but really our hearts to connect with you today. That we would bring our fears, we would bring our concerns, we would bring the troubles that are weighing heavily upon us. God, some in this room uh, maybe didn't sleep well this week because of just fears and troubles and concerns. And so God, we bring all those to you right now. We bring our flaws and our failures to you right now. And we say, would you minister to us through your word? We pray this all in Jesus' good name. Amen. I want to start somewhere. I don't think I've ever done this before. I want to show you guys a painting that I stumbled across this week. Uh, I've got a slide. We'll put it up in here. This this is a painting. Uh, It's called, it's a very creative title. The the title of the painting is called Composition Number 7. And it's by a Russian artist named Vasily Kandinsky. And he is uh, pre-World War I. This is, I believe this was painted in 1913. And and this guy, Kandinsky, is known as, by many in in the art world, as the father of abstract art. Now, I'm not a huge art fan, but when I find a piece of art that I do like, most of the time I am drawn to art that is more like this and is less like a painting of a countryside or a bowl of fruit or something like that. If you like paintings of bowls of fruit and countrysides, God bless you. That's why it's art. You can like what you like and I can like what I like and that's fine. But here's the thing. A lot of people, when they see an image like this, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of like, what does it mean? What does this painting mean? So I was looking at this painting and I was, I was kind of looking at my my computer monitor, and, and I was just kind of looking, I'm like, man, this is, to me, it's like there's optimism in there. It feels kind of hopeful. It feels kind of optimistic. It feels like there's like an upward draw emotionally. And then I started looking and actually found out that the artist, one of the themes he was exploring in composition number seven was resurrection. 
And I was like, oh, yeah, I can see it. Some of you are like, what is this guy on, right? Like, some of you are really stressed out just by me even bringing this up, right? Now, here's, here's the point. You would not use this painting as a map to drive to Spokane, Okay? You would, if somebody, if somebody walked in, like, hey, I need to figure out, I need to, I've never driven to Spokane before. How do I go to the east? Like, well, obviously you can see the I-90 is kind of going up to the left there. And so watch out for that. And then there's also like, sometimes there's bad weather in the middle. So be careful. Like you'd say like, you're crazy. That is not a map. This is a piece of art. It's not a map, right? Or if somebody said, hey, I want to, I want to make chocolate chip cookies. I need a recipe for chocolate chip cookies. And someone slammed this piece of art down in front of you and said, well, obviously you can see right in the center, that thing's shaped like a chocolate chip. So make sure you use lots of chocolate chips. And then you see those crisscrosses up there. Don't cook them too long because then they're crispy and crispy cookies are of the devil. You want them soft. And and like, you'd say like, this is, this is lunacy. Now, why do we use the Bible like that when we come to abstract art that is apocalyptic literature. That's not how Daniel 7 through 12 works. But people take these chapters of the Bible and try to turn them into a recipe or try to turn them into a map, try to turn them into a timeline. Lest you think that I'm joking or exaggerating, I was having a conversation with one of our church members who shall remain nameless a few weeks ago. His name is Chris. And he, he and I were talking about this book that he was really into and uh, back in the day. And now he's been doing some study and learning. He's like, man, it seems like they're using the Bible kind of in some ways that you shouldn't really use it. And so he sent me this, this book and I was reading through it. I'm like, oh my goodness. I'll, I'll, I won't name the author, but the author says, this was in the introduction for a complete end times timeline chart that starts with the next prophecy to be fulfilled and covers America's fall in World War III, the year of the rapture and Jesus' return, start on page 39. Wow, okay. Um, like, I'm, I'm not just strawmanning. Like, this is a real publication. A guy really has a website. And I kid you not, I flipped to page 39, and sure enough, there was a timeline of when Russia would nuke America followed by Jesus appearing and the rapture, followed by like all these events. And it was supposed to happen. It was actually supposed to start last year in 2018. I'm like, well, I guess the rest of the timeline is off. But he's, he thought of that. And he said, well, it's a seven-year cycle. So if it didn't happen this window, just wait seven years and then there's a new timeline. I'm like, that is really smart because then the book is evergreen and you can just keep releasing it. Like, well, you know, it didn't happen that time. But 2023, guys, Jesus will return. I know Jesus said no man knows the day or the hour. I know Jesus said... He didn't know the day or the hour of his return, but this guy does. So the point is, this type of literature is called apocalyptic literature. And it works differently than stories. It works differently than the letters of Paul. It just works differently. And we need to use it and we need to understand it differently. Let me, let me unpack for just a minute here. So the word apocalypse literally means an unveiling. It's actually a, a term that comes from the Greek uh, for plays when like an actor would take off their mask that they would wear. Uh, if I was to open up this golden curtain and you guys could see the big mess of, you know, cables and road boxes and stuff like that, you're like, oh, that's an apocalypse. And it doesn't mean end of the world. It literally just means a, a peek behind the curtain, as it were. Apocalyptic literature is a style of Hebrew writing. So you almost think of it like a genre of music. We might say like classical music and someone's like, well, yeah, but I'm really into Baroque. Like it's a type of classical music. There's Hebrew writing, there's Hebrew prophecy, and then there's apocalyptic. It's like a sub-genre. 
It was really popular from the time of the exile through about the time of Jesus, a little bit after Jesus. In fact, most scholars will say that the book of Daniel is the first of the Jewish apocalyptic literature and that the book of Revelation really is the last type of uh, 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 apocalyptic literature excuse me, that we have uh, in our possession. And there's other books too, like um, in the Bible, there's like sections of Ezekiel or the prophet Zechariah. Uh, The words of Jesus sometimes, when he speaks, he speaks in apocalyptic style. He talks about the the moon being darkened and the stars falling from the sky. And there's even some books in the in-between period. We call them the the intertestamental books or sometimes the Apocrypha. And there's books like uh, like the book of Enoch that are just very dreams and visions. And it's a really popular style that really, once the the destruction of the temple happened in 70 AD, no more apocalyptic literature was written. And it relies heavily on symbols and images and numbers. I'm going to click down one layer deeper because I really want you to understand this. It's so misunderstood, this genre of apocalypse. And there's an article from a guy named uh, Stephen Motyer, and I linked to it on the website if you want to read the whole article, but let me just summarize the five main points that he made, the five things that you need to look for in apocalyptic literature. The first one is this. Apocalyptic revelation can only be understood by an explanation. You may have noticed even in our scripture reading today, you know, Daniel has these dreams and he has these visions. He has to go and ask someone And it's rarely God. God rarely directly speaks. It's usually an angel, a supernatural being, a divine uh, servant of God who who gives these explanations. We're going to see that even today. There's a real strong theme of interconnectedness between heaven and earth. So even there, these, this peeling back of the curtain and you're seeing a picture into a realm that we don't often see, it's, it's clear that that realm is connected to our realm. Think about like in the book of Revelation when it says, to the angel at the church in Philadelphia. Well, are we talking about the church in Philadelphia? Are we talking about the, church, the angel? And it's like, yeah, it's both. There's something going on in the supernatural realm. A few chapters from now, it's like, Michael's like, I, the archangel's like, well, I couldn't get here because I was battling the prince of Persia. I'm like, what is happening here. So the, 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 the idea of the connectedness between heaven and earth runs throughout. Number three, there's chaos, but God is ruling. God is always ruling. There's always this picture of, of God being sovereign over the chaos of the world. Number four, there's always a theme of the ultimate protection of God's people. It's not that God's people won't go through hardships or experience trials, pain. Some will even die. But ultimately, those who are connected to God will be rescued and vindicated. And then lastly, there's always an ultimate victory of God. Some sort of climactic battle, some sort of a scene, and God reigns victorious. There's a scholar, uh, Barbara Longlai, and she says this. She says, these visions about, about Daniel 7 and, and, and the other chapters, she says, these visions are full of mysterious images, exotic descriptions of celestial figures, puzzling numbers, and indeterminate timetables. Sorry, earlier author guy. Indeterminate timetables. While readers' active participation in the meaning-making process of the first six chapters is crucial, here's, here it is. Chapters 7 through 12 requires a deeper level of emotional engagement with the first-person visions. In other words, readers are encouraged to immerse themselves in Daniel's visionary experience as he describes it. 
The way in which the passage requires readers' involvement is perhaps the key to understanding the significance of each of the four visions that now make up the rest of the book of Daniel. So, a long introduction, but I feel like it's necessary because we could, we, we actually live in the United States of America in a culture where that approach, it's, it, it's not treated like abstract art. It's treated like a secret message where I need the decoder ring and if I can just figure it out, then I can know all of the answers to everything. And I'm just telling you, we need to think differently. So I even want to do it now. I'm going to do it a little bit different. I'm just going to read us through this chapter. And I'm, I'm not encouraging you to turn your brain off, but I am encouraging you to turn up your emotional engagement a little bit. Have you ever had a dream that like just freaked you out, disturbed you? You know that feeling you wake up the next day, you kind of can't shake it. It might affect your whole entire day. It's kind of like that. So I'm going to read through. I'm going to make some comments as we go through. Just kind of try to shine some light on this. And then at the end, I have... Three thoughts I want to share with you. That's it. Daniel chapter 7, verse 1. Somebody start playing the Wizard of Oz. We'll see if it lines up. Okay. That was, that was a pretty good joke. I'm proud of that one. In the first... <laughs> back on track. Here we go. I'm talking to myself, guys. Uh, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. So we've just gone back in time a little bit, Right? So this happened somewhere in between Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5. Nebuchadnezzar's not king. Several kings go through kind of this period of time before Belshazzar steps in as as the king. So some period, sometime during that period, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. This is a narrator telling us this. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. So now we have basically like a, a journal entry from Daniel. Daniel declared... I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. Four winds. Four is a number that often is representative of the earth, the four corners of the earth, the four winds, north, south, east, and west. And the great sea would be a reference to the Mediterranean, the the largest sea. This isn't, you know, the Dead Sea or the Sea of Galilee. It's not one of those smaller bodies of water. It's the great sea. And and in the, the Jewish mindset, in fact, many of the peoples in the ancient Near Eastern world, the sea is just no good. The waters of chaos, there, there's, there's things down in there that we can't find and we can't see. Go back and read Genesis chapter 1. Where does it say that the Spirit of God is hovering before God starts creating? The Spirit of God is hovering over the waters, the chaotic waters. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion, and it had eagle's wings. All of these beasts are kind of a hybrid nature. You have to remember to an ancient Jewish reader, that would have been particularly disturbing and horrific. It would have triggered all of the alarm bells about, you know, the mixing of seeds, the mixing of fabrics, things that that just don't go together. A lion with eagle's wing, that is an unclean animal. It's an abomination. But then I looked as its wings were plucked off. It's not unclean anymore. And it was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. It's interesting. Behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. 
It was raised up on one side, and translation on this line is a little bit hard. Some scholars think it, it doesn't mean like it's raised up on one side, like it's tipped, but like it's a bear down on four paws, but it's kind of like starting the process of raising up. Like it's going to attack, it's going to rear, uh, like um, raise up. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, arise, devour much flesh. And after this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. By the way, who is plucking off wings, and who is saying, arise, eat much flesh, and who is giving dominion to these beasts. After this, I saw in the night visions, and and listen, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And it had 10 horns. We don't really get much of a description of this beast. Iron teeth, 10 horns, exceedingly terrifying. And I considered the horns. I was thinking about, I was really thinking, I was really thinking about those horns. And behold, there came up among them another horn, a, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn, were eyes, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. And that's when you're like, that's it, I'm done. I'm going to Philippians. Give me something easier. What? What? Ten horns, add one, eleven, take away three, eight. Little guy is this little horn, but he's got a big mouth, a horn with a mouth. Like, I can't help but see it like in a, like a cartoony sort of a way, like where, like, you know, you have like a, a, a picture and then like, like they cut out the mouth and the eyes of somebody and they're like talking. Like, what is the deal with the horn? By the way, we're going to get into horns <laughs> next Sunday. I don't know if I should tell you that, but like next Sunday is horn Sunday. Like don't bring your shofar. But uh, next week is all about horns and rams and goats and, you know, horns. Think about a horn is like a symbol of power. It's a symbol of authority. Think about the types of animals that have horns, you know, noble animals like a ram or, or a strong animal like a, like a narwhal or something, right? Like just different animals that have horns. That's what it represents. It's like a king. Verse 9, and I looked, thrones were placed, lots of thrones, multiple thrones, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels, its wheels, the throne with wheels, they were burning fire and a stream of fire issued out and came out before him. Thousand thousands served him and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. Like the biggest number that anyone could think of in the ancient world. 10,000 times 10,000. And the court sat in judgment and the books were open. Man, there's a lot of symbolism in there. 
God, first of all, number, number one, God is not a man. We know that God is spirit. But here he is depicted the ancient of days and his hair is white like wool. He is not an old man. He is eternal and he is wise. And his clothes are pure white because he is righteous and there is no darkness or death or sin in him. And what's the deal with the throne that's on fire, but it has wheels? And it's like shooting fire. Like that does not sound safe. The wheels, there's some symbolism there about God is ruling and reigning, but he can go anywhere. He's not stuck to one place. I think there's something to there. Ezekiel writes a lot about the fire chariot Godmobile thing, and it's like there's eyes and more wheels. That's very strange. And the court sat in judgment. This idea of there's a divine council that God has spiritual beings that, that he uh, rules through. We're going to get into that more in a few weeks as well. But the books were opened. God keeps records of everything. Now, now you and I as Christians, we, the great news of the gospel is that God takes our record and he replaces it with Christ's record of perfection. But just remember, the starting point is God sees, God knows everything. God sees, hears, knows everything. None of us, our actions, our attitudes, even the thoughts of our heart, nothing is hidden in the eyes of God. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. Right back to this horn talking again. So it's almost like there's a split screen, right? Like there's this whole water and chaos and beast down here and then like God and the Ancient of Days is seated up there and this, this one beast and the horn is speaking and as I looked, the beast was killed, its body destroyed and it was given over to be burned with fire. Well, that was quick. <laughs> there's the victory. Not much of a battle, just it was destroyed. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but... Their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. How long is a season and a time? Sometime. It's like a season, like it lasts, and then like, and then just a time, a little bit more. These beasts, they won't have dominion forever. Their dominion's taken away, but their, their effects are still felt for a while. It's going to be Oh, there's, there's something in there about the already not yet of the kingdom of God. There's something in there. I saw in the night visions, verse 13, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Now just pause. You and I, as New Testament Christians, when you hear the phrase son of man, that starts, you know, oh, I know what that means. That's Jesus. That's Jesus. Try though for a moment Pretend like you've never heard of Jesus. I never thought I'd say that as a preacher. Pretend like you've never heard of Jesus. The phrase son of man is just simply a Hebrew idiom that means a human being. If you remember in Psalm 8, we, we looked at that last week briefly. Psalm 8 it says, what is a man that you're mindful of him? A son of man that you care for him. That's Hebrew parallelism. A son of man is just a man. It's a human being. We say things like, like father, like son. They say a son of man. It's just a person, a guy, a regular guy, a real flesh and blood person. 
So if you're receiving this vision or if you're hearing this, you know, and the, 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 the first here is, oh, there's just a man, there's a guy. But it says that he came with the clouds of heaven and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. Okay, well, now I'm super confused if I'm a, if I'm a you know, fifth century Jewish hearer because clouds, that's God stuff. A human being does not ride on clouds. The Psalms are full of language of God riding on clouds. When God showed up to lead the Israelites through the desert, he's a pillar of cloud. When his presence falls on the tabernacle or on the temple, it's a cloud. There's language in Job and the Psalms all throughout about he makes the clouds his chariot. How is some son of man riding on the clouds? I'm confused, Daniel. Is he a man or is he God? And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, this son of man. His dominion is an everlasting kingdom, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So unlike the beasts, he will have a kingdom that's never to be shaken. Doesn't that kind of, for those of you who have been with us, doesn't that remind you of Daniel 2? The four kingdoms and the, the rock that comes. And... Verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I approached one of those who stood there. He's approaching an angel. And I asked him the truth concerning all this. And so he told me and made, me no- made known to me the interpretation of the things. Okay, good. We're going to get some interpretation here. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Okay, so he gets the interpretation. It's very simple. It's four kingdoms, but don't worry about them because the people who are connected to God are going to rule and reign forever. But Daniel is still fixated. But I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, and the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things that seemed greater than its companions. And as, as I looked, this horn actually made war with the saints and prevailed over them. So, so Daniel has just been told, don't worry about the beasts. The saints of the Most High God are going to rule and reign forever. He's like, yeah, but look, but look, the talking beast horn little guy is fighting against the saints and they're losing. The people of God are losing and Daniel's fixated on that. Until the Ancient of Days came, oh, And judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. I should have just paid attention to what you told me, angel guy. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on the earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. And as for the ten horns out of this kingdom, ten other kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them, and he shall be different from the former ones. He shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High. Yes, he will wear out the saints of the Most High. He even thinks that he'll change the times 
commandments and the law, and they will be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Pause. I need to say something for a time. Some of my sermons are like a time, and then times, and then half a time. Just a little bit more, right? Uh, There's a lot of uh, interpretive ideas about this time, times, half a time thing. And oftentimes you hear it, well, it's a year, and then it's two years, and then it's half of a year, so it's three and a half years. And the only, there's a couple problems with that. First of all, it never says years, it just says times. Second of all, uh, the second times is not double, it's plural. So it could be much more. Time, times, and half a time. Where I've kind of landed is that when, and we're going to see that phrase used multiple times throughout the book of Daniel, where, I, where I've kind of landed interpretively is it means, yep, it's obvious a time, and then times, like, oh, it just keeps on going. And then half a time, like, oh, even just a little bit more. It's, it's to point us to this idea of, like, we've got to endure. We've got to endure. We're going to talk more about this horn and about this boastful horn uh, when we get into Daniel chapter 11 and we start to learn more about this anti-Messiah figure, this anti-Christ. And I will reveal who the anti-Christ is if you buy my book on AaronGraveSecrets.com. But let me just say something about these four kingdoms because people kind of get into these, the, the, the interpretation of the kingdoms and the times and all that sort of stuff. There, there's kind of three main interpretations that people look at when, they, when you look at Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 and these four kingdoms. The first one is kind of the simplest and most straightforward. The simple interpretation is the first kingdom is Babylon. The second kingdom is the combined kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. The third kingdom would be Greece. And the fourth one is Rome. This is the most simple. It's the most straightforward. Obviously, back in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar was told, you are the head of gold in that statue. And it seems reasonable to think that this first beast, this lion with eagle's wings, by the way, if you were to go to modern-day Iraq and go to some of the archaeological digs of ancient Babylon, you will find all over the place lions with eagle's wings on them. That was just a sign and an artwork that the ancient Babylonians really liked. I also really think there's something to this idea of his, his, the, ring, the, the wings were ripped off, made to stand up like a man, and the mind of a man was given to him. I think there's something in there about the, the transformation that Nebuchadnezzar went through. Remember when I said, like, is, like did Nebuchadnezzar get saved? I don't know. I, put, I just put a few more coins in that jar, I think, maybe. I don't know. Uh, the, the bear, oh, it's the Medes and the Persians. It's this big thing. And there's some stuff in history about, you know, the, the three kingdoms, the three ribs in the mouth and the three kingdoms that they dispossessed. And there's some stuff there. And then the, 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 um, the leopard, a very fast animal. It's got four wings, so it goes really fast. That's obviously Alexander the Great and the Greeks because he conquered the world faster than anyone had. Like he, he like ruled over the whole world by the time he was like 27. What did you do by the time you were 27? Like... I got $100 in my savings account or what, like, right? Like 27-year-olds, they don't just, they don't take over the world like they used to. And then the fourth most terrible one, the most terrifying would be the Romans and it's, you know, it's iron and it's claws. And so that's kind of the simplest interpretive option. There's a more skeptical one, 
where, uh, and, and it's kind of complicated, but basically people who come from a more skeptical perspective think that it's Babylon and then Media by themselves, then Persia, then Greece. And there are some, there, it's not completely crazy. There are some reasons in the text that might point to that. But oftentimes it's coming from a place of skepticism because the people are looking at the book of Daniel and they're saying there's no way that Daniel could predict with such accuracy the way that uh, human civilization is going to go. They say the book has to be written a lot later, and it's written during the time of Greece, and the last horn is this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. And, and it's like, but the skepticism for us is unfounded because if there is a God who created heavens and the earth, and if he raised his son Jesus from the dead, and he can communicate things ahead of time. So the skepticism in my mind is unwarranted and unfounded. The third one, though, is more symbolic. So simple, skeptical, or symbolic. Maybe there's a reason why there's four beasts. Because this is just how the world is. Remember four, the world, four beasts? And maybe, it's, maybe there's a reason why we can map on, well, the bear is actually uh, you know, the Ottoman Empire, and then there's Russia and China, and you can, you can map on the United States of America, and that's why we end up with all these different interpretive options. Maybe because these different nations of the world are like the way nations are. There's just a lot of nations that are like ravenous beasts. And there's a lot of people who are in power who use their power to hurt and crush and destroy. Maybe there's all these different interpretive options because maybe there's some truth to all of them. I don't know. But here's the, here's the ending of the story. Verse 26. Who's the horn? Who's the fourth beast? The point is, this angel says to Daniel, the court shall sit in judgment and his dominion, this this fourth beast, he's not going to be in charge anymore to be consumed and destroyed to the end and the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven, the, the greatest civilizations that the world has ever known, all of them will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him, this son of man and the people who are connected with him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed. That was a stressful dream. You think think it's stressful reading Daniel 7? (laughs) Try receiving Daniel chapter 7. But I I kept this matter in my heart. All right, how are we doing? Check it in. Okay. I want to share three thoughts with you. Small, medium, large. You personally, the world, the heavens. The first thought is this. You can read and understand your Bible. You can read and you can understand your Bible. Now, that's a challenging passage of Scripture. Can I get an amen from anybody? Like, there's a lot of symbolism. There's a lot of like, I don't know. And I mean, like, I bought, for this sermon series, I bought more commentaries than I ever have for any other sermon series we've ever done at Sound City Bible Church. I think I bought 13 or 14 commentaries for this series alone. And I try to read, you know, at least six, seven of them any given week. And there are, time and time again, they just go like, well, we don't really know. <laughs> like, these are people like with PhDs in Ugaritic and ancient Near Eastern Semitic languages. And I'm like, well, if you don't know, what hope is there for the rest of us? But actually, I walked away from my time of prep this week 
with a deeper conviction that we all can read and understand what the Word of God is saying to us. There's a, there's a, a confession, a, 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 an, an old confession called the London Baptist Confession. It's some of the same language as the Westminster Confession, but if you look right at the beginning, they're talking about the Bible, and it says this. All things in the Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. You're right. We agree. Uh, exhibit A, B, C, and D is Daniel chapter 7. Not everything in Scripture is plain or clear to us. Yet, here's, that's a big yet, those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in a due use of ordinary means may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. Let me, let me paraphrase that in case you also didn't understand that. Uh, old 1600s English. Here's the thing. Some stuff in Scripture is confusing, to be sure. And there are some very deep matters there. But God is not trying to trick you, and you don't need a secret decoder ring. In fact, those things which are necessary to be believed and understood, to be saved, are so clear and obvious that even a child can apprehend them. I had an opportunity. I mentioned all these commentaries I got. I got an opportunity this last week. Uh, You may have heard me uh, quote from a guy named Tremper Longman. And uh, it's one of the commentaries I use. I got to meet Tremper Longman this last week. He was in town doing a seminar on the book of Esther. I went up, I shook his hand and said, uh, Dr. Longman, I'm so incredibly thankful for you. Your commentary is like my favorite one. It's been really, really helpful as I'm trying to lead our people through the book of Daniel. And I said, can I please take a selfie with you so that every time from now on I quote you on a sermon, I can say, like my close personal friend Tremper Longman would say, and he laughed and he goes, absolutely. Absolutely. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use that at some point here. I'm really thankful for Tremper Longman. Guy has multiple PhDs. The guy is wicked smart. He was just like quoting Hebrew uh, from memory. Uh, there's other guys, you know, who I, I really appreciate. They can, they, can, they can do like ancient Akkadian, and they know the difference between Akkadian and Ugaritic and Hebrew and Aramaic and how the Semitic roots are all this. Like, I am so grateful that people like that exist. But at the end of the day, you and I can open our Bibles and God will speak to us through his word, even if there are some things that we don't fully understand. And in fact, some of you might be saying, well, I, I don't know how. I, I, I don't want to read those things because I'm, I'm, I'm simple or I'm, I'm not a scholar or I don't, I, don't, uh, I don't read goodly, you know, or whatever. Psalm 119 actually says that that's the place where we need to run to God and his word. Psalm 119 says, the revelation of your words brings light and gives understanding to the inexperienced. So you shouldn't say, well, I'm, I don't have understanding, I don't have experience, therefore I can't read the, the, the Bible. No, go to the Word of God. I, I'm, I'm saying this loudly and on the record. My sincere hope and goal with my preaching, most weeks when I get the opportunity to stand before you and preach, my goal is to make you less and less dependent upon me and more and more directly dependent on the Word of God for yourself. That's my goal. If I could work myself out of a job, I I would. Because I want you to go to the Lord in his word. I want you to read and understand it for yourself. I get emails or questions or sometimes pushback or sometimes people come up and say, oh, have you thought about this? Like, oh, that's a really good thought. You've been digging in. I like it. And I'm like, I'm gonna use that for the next service or whatever. Like, I I love that we can be people of the word. And I just wanna encourage you, even in something obscure like Daniel 7, you can walk away with 
truth from God's word. Truths like, number two, and this, these will be quicker, but the nations will rage, but God is sovereign. I think I summarized Daniel 7 pretty well, right? I think I actually just summarized human history pretty well. I don't understand Ugaritic or Akkadian, but I do know that there's some messed up things in the world. And if I'm to believe the truth of this vision, that I should put my trust in God because he is ruling and he is reigning and he's sovereign over all things. We don't need to figure out what exactly corresponds to what, which horn is which person, is which king, is which kingdom. We can just remember they're all like beasts, but there's a kingdom coming through God if we will just endure and be patient. It reminds me of in Psalm 2, the language of why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off us. Just, <laughs> um, the nations have been raging for a while. I see a lot of outrage and a lot of like uh, social media outrage. And, and honestly, we should be outraged over the nations, you know, doing wicked, awful things. We should be upset. We should be frustrated, but we shouldn't be so incredulous. I hear people say, can you believe that nation, whatever, can you believe that our administration, I'm like, yeah, I can totally believe it. Because we've got like 5,000 years of written down human history where that's pretty much the pattern. Do you know why people sometimes are incredulous? Because in the United States of America, we are children of the enlightenment. And the enlightenment had at its root this idea that if we just had enough time and we had enough control, we could solve all the world's problems. And I'm not exaggerating. It was utopia was offered. We will usher in the perfect nation, the likes of which have never existed before. Friends, I don't know what your experience is of the United States of America, but it hasn't ever been perfect. Far from it. And it doesn't matter who is elected as president or senators or who gets appointed. It's not going to be perfect that next year after that either. Why do the nations rage? Well, they just, they've been raging for a while. This is just what life under the sun is like. He who sits in the heavens laughs and the Lord holds them in derision. I don't know about you. I find something comforting about that verse that God is looking down on the nations of the world raging. It's like, you idiots. That's what derision means. Like, like, like patting them on the head. Like, you dummies. Like, uh, it makes me think of, it makes me think of uh, foreign policy. Uh, everyone's, you know, most exciting favorite subject. Uh, I was thinking about foreign policy, some article I came across recently, and there's some pretty tragic things happening in, in like, Turkey and the Kurdish people, stuff going on right now. It's just horrific. And people, well, we need foreign policy and this and that. And I was thinking about, in the book of Daniel, how God used the foreign policy of the Babylonians to take the people of Israel into captivity to fulfill promises he made through Isaiah and Jeremiah. And, and like, he, he used foreign policy. And then when the Persians took over, he used their foreign policy of, like, sending people back home. Like, that's just what they did. That's what the Babylonians did. That's what the Persians did. That was their foreign policy. And God's like, watch me use your boring, stupid foreign policy to accomplish my perfect sovereign purposes. I like that. That makes me happy. I'm still not going to read a lot about foreign policy because it's boring. But God knows what he's doing. 
Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill, which really is the main big point from Daniel chapter 7, which is the true hero of human history is the son of man. The true history, the true hero is none other than the son of man. Who's going to show up and deal with the beasts? Who's going to show up and deal with all of the chaos of the world? And Jesus comes on the scene and says, I am. It's me. Jesus used this phrase, son of man, for himself more than any other title. And again, it's just to the, to the ears, it's just, well, it's just a human one, but after this vision shows up, Daniel chapter 7, many scholars believe that Daniel chapter 7 is the most important chapter in the entire Old Testament when it comes to understanding the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus said things like, he says like, you know, my life, my, my life is, is going to be humble. He goes, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Or like the verse that, that Pete just read about his ministry, that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that, that which is lost. Or when it comes to his death, Mark 10, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life, to give his life as a ransom for many. On the cross, one of the ways that we can look at it is that on the cross, all of the beasts of the earth took out all of their wrath and their fury on him, that Jesus faced not just uh, teeth of iron, but nails of iron. That this is where Jesus confronts the powers and the nations of the world, on the cross. But then his glorious resurrection, right? The Son of Man will be delivered into the hands of sinful men and crucified, but on the third day he will rise. This is where the victory comes in. This is where he tramples over the beast. He says, oh yeah, you gave it your best. What'd you do? Kill me? I can defeat death itself. I'm not scared of beasts or leopards or lions or tigers or bears or any such thing because I've faced death itself and I've come through on the other side. He ascends. Jesus says, what if you saw me ascend, the son of man ascending to where he was before? That Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God, reigning. Luke 22, from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And one day, Mark 13 promises us that he will return. Jesus, his little miniature apocalypse in Mark 13, he says, in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will give its light and will not give its light and the stars will be falling from the heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Who's going to deal with the problems in the world? It's Jesus. Who's going to deal with the beasts out there? Jesus. Who's going to deal with the beasts in here? Because some days I feel like I got all four of those beasts raging in my own heart and mind. It's Jesus. So simply put, I'll just say to you, put your trust in the Son of Man. If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, you've never given your life to him in that way, today is the season. There, there's, there's this season where God has made it that we can respond to Jesus, we can put our trust in him, but there is a day of judgment coming. And so my plea with you is, don't put your hope in yourself, don't put your hope in 
earthly kingdoms and politics and leaders. Don't put your hope in, 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 your, in the ultimate sense in, in science or medicine or philosophy or literature or any such thing. Put your hope in Jesus. If he really died and really rose from the dead, then that means we need to take his claim seriously. And he claims to be able to give eternal life to those who put their trust in him. So I'm pleading with you. Put your faith and your trust in the Son of Man. For those of you who already are followers of Jesus, my plea is actually the same. Keep putting your trust in the Son of Man. How many of you find you could be a little bit like Daniel, where you're like, yeah, yeah, the Son of Man, but what about that beast? What about that four? I really want to understand the beast. Like, yeah, 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 okay, he's, he's real bad, but he's going to die. And then you're going to have an everlasting kingdom that cannot be shaken forever and ever and ever, where all the beasts of all of human history are destroyed to the end. Keep your eyes on Jesus. One of the reasons why uh, we as elders wanted to go through the book of Daniel is very intentional. There's a big election coming in a year. And there's already debates on TV, and there's already opinions, and I'm already seeing fights galore, and this, that, and the other thing. And, and there's an intentionality behind doing Daniel in this time for us to say, as people of the Son of Man, I'm not saying that politics is unimportant, but I'm just saying it's too easy to get distracted and all that kind of stuff and forget where our real hope lies. So next election season, you can be happy that whoever you voted for was in, disappointed, but we're not going to be rejoicing or defeated and crushed because we have a king and a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Keep your eyes on him. Endure. Get some perspective. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to trust more deeply in you. God, I pray that we would go to you in prayer. We would go to you in the scriptures. We'd even seek you in sections of scripture maybe that are a little bit strange or foreign to us. Lord Jesus, now as we come to you at a celebration of the Lord's table, would we experience your presence with us, your grace with us, your love and your compassion, your care for us. God, I don't know where all of these people in this room are and where we're feeling and where we're stressed and where the the beasts just seem to be raging. So Jesus, would you meet with us now at the table with your presence, with your reassurance and your love? We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Pastor Doug is going to lead us in a time of communion. We'll, we'll welcome our younger students class in to join us here, but let's go to Jesus. Thank you, Pastor Aaron. We're, I count myself very fortunate to sit under faithful teaching of the Word, so I, I just really appreciate that. So as we transition to communion, you guys, we'll welcome the students coming in here and the leaders. Go ahead and pull out the bread and the juice, and um, if you forgot to get one on the way in, you'll find them at the entrances, but there's also a few down here if you want to go ahead and pick one up right now, if anybody needs one, Um, like Pastor Aaron. So you guys have been wanting to do this for a while. Um, You guys have all probably figured out how to open up these little little packets, but when they first came out, I, I would just sit there and twiddle and just cut my fingernails. I can't get it open and that sort of thing. But I, I, I've learned, maybe you cursed under your breath about these little things. Um, there's a little trick, and maybe you guys all figured it out by now, but if you just drop this tab down, it tends to separate. So uh, I just needed to throw that in. So. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've been wanting to do it for a while, so. Um, you guys, uh, we're going to read from 1 Corinthians in a minute here. But I want to, I wanna, during our time, I want to go over the verses and just talk about them a little bit and reflect on the cross uh, before we actually take communion. So, The Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Jesus' body was tortured so badly that it was barely recognizable. He went through this for us. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So we know that the the cup speaks of his blood and his death his perfect sacrifice on a cross, replacing the sacrificial system of the old covenant. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. I must never forget what it costs that God would call me his son. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Pastor Aaron said that there's a season. There is a time limit on celebrating the Lord's Supper as well because Jesus is coming back for us again. Someday, it could be in my lifetime, maybe not. But someday, that's, that's our hope. Now on the cross, Jesus says, It is finished. This is a statement that was made back then. I believe it's Tetelestai when a business transaction was final. But one thing I didn't know is that also it was the pronouncement given concerning a lamb that passed inspection. And something that means a ton to me is when someone shared with me that the priest didn't look at the person bringing the lamb. He looked at the lamb the perfect lamb. Every other religion and cult bases its teachings on what I must do, what we must do. Only Christianity bases its belief system not on what remains to be done, but on what Jesus has already done. We can't do anything to get right with God or or closer except to realize that it's all been done. Then we can continue to walk with him and we can say, Father, I'm coming to you expecting your blessing because I'm confident of your grace, not because of who I am, but because of what your son accomplished when he cried, it is finished. Then Jesus' last words, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus, son of God, Son of man offered up his life as sacrifice for you and I and placed himself in God's hands. This is what we are remembering. This is what we're celebrating. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Here, Paul cautions us. We must never disregard the true meaning of the bread and the cup and, or forget the great price paid for our salvation. So take time now. Commune with God. Share unconfessed sin. And celebrate that what men meant for evil, God used for our greatest good. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. That you came to seek and save the lost. And that you'll never give up on me. Amen.